let us now read together what we confess. First, what we confess in the Belgic Confession, Article 32, that's on page 514 of your Book of Praise. And then Lord's Day 35 from the Heidelberg Catechism. and discipline of the church, we believe that although it is useful and good for those who govern the church to establish a certain order to maintain the body of the church, they must at all times watch that they do not deviate from what Christ, our only master, has commanded. Therefore, we reject all human inventions and laws introduced into the worship of God, which bind and compel the consciences in any way. We accept only what is proper to preserve and promote harmony and unity and to keep all in obedience to God. To that end, discipline and excommunication ought to be exercised in agreement with the word of God. And then from Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism, there we find God's word summarized as follows. What does God require in the second commandment? We are not to make an image of God in any way, nor to worship him in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. May we then not make any image at all? God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Creatures may be portrayed, but God forbids us to make or have any images of them in order to worship them or to serve God through them. But may images not be tolerated in the churches as books for the laity? No, for we should not be wiser than God. He wants his people to be taught not by means of dumb images, but by the living preaching of his word. After the sermon, we will sing together from hymn three, the stanzas one, two, and three. O God, we praise you, we acknowledge you as Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, also you young people are included, and young children in the pews, everyone, including the elderly. This message is for all of us. And all around us, we can see that this is a festive time of the year. People everywhere are preparing for the Christmas holidays. These activities are fueled by the merchants actively peddling their wares. They create the mood by decorating their stores with Christmas ornaments, and by inundating the airwaves with advertisements accompanied by Christmas jingles. In the shopping malls, we hear beautiful hymns to the praise of the birth of our Savior, intermixed with songs like Jingle Bells. 
and here comes Santa Claus. The retail merchants eagerly promote the Christmas season in this way. They do that because to them this is the best time of the year. Not necessarily because of the birth of Christ, but because of all the money coming in. The masses eagerly go along with it all. They're basically planning their festivities, decorating their homes, having office parties, and getting presents for that special person in their lives. They shop until everyone on their list has been checked off. They shop until they drop. And they do it all because of the season, the spirit of the season, whatever that spirit is. We, too, get, get caught up in it, don't we? Many of the things the world does, we do as well. Now, the question is whether or not that is right. We have to stop and think. To what extent should we be caught up in this? What are we as Christians to do at a time like this, the time at Christmas? What does the Lord want from us? And that is what this Lord's Day 35 has us deal with. For it is about the second commandment, which deals with the way we must worship. The Catechism summarizes that commandment by teaching that we must not worship the Lord God in any other manner than he has commanded in his word. We may not bring any ungodly human elements into it, nor take away any divine elements from it. That is straight from God's word. In connection with the second commandment, the Lord God tells us in Deuteronomy 12, verse 32, see that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. That is what I will preach to you about this morning. The theme is as follows. Worship the Lord only in a manner he has shown in his word. That means two things. That means that we may not, in the first place, add to it. In the second place, take away from it. There are Christian believers who are not in favor of celebrating Christmas. Some even go so far as to say that you sin when you do that. They say that Christmas is a human invention. They say that about other holidays as well such as Good Friday and Easter and Ascension Day. Now it is true that the command to celebrate Christmas on December the 25th is to be found nowhere in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Scripture do not tell us what time of the year the Lord Jesus Christ was born. Exegetes will point out that the shepherds in Palestine came in from the fields before winter. And so the shepherds mentioned in Luke 2 at the time of the birth of Christ would not have been in the fields during the month of December. The sheep would have been brought back to their villages in late October or early November. Why then do we celebrate Christmas at the end of December? Well, that is because this date has its roots and pagan holidays. The end of December was a time of celebration 
for the pagans in the south of Europe, in Egypt and Persia, and in Rome and Greece, and among the German and Celtic tribes. They celebrated the fact that after the end of December, the days will be getting longer again. It marked the season of the winter solstice. The holly, the mistletoe, the yule log, the Christmas lights, and the evergreen trees were all part originally of pagan worship. Christmas was not celebrated during the first few centuries of the church. It did not become a practice to celebrate the birth of Christ at the end of December until the middle of the fourth century and only became an official Christmas holiday in the year 534. The celebration of Christmas at the end of December became a practice because of Pope Gregory I's instructions to the missionaries. He wanted to exchange the pagan, pagan holidays for Christian ones. He wanted the pagans to worship the God of the Bible. So he appropriated the pagan holidays and made them Christian holidays. Since then, Christmas slowly became one of the most important holidays in the Christian calendar. Good Friday, Easter, and Thanksgiving were added as well. These latter days are by and large celebrated at the right times of the year. But also with these special holidays, there is no express command in the Bible to have a special day of worship to celebrate these events. The reformers of the 16th century examined these practices and wanted to go back to the scriptures. Luther, Calvin, and Swingley were not in favor of keeping these special religious holidays. Calvin, like the others, had no sympathy whatever with Roman Catholic ceremonialism which was overloaded with unscriptural traditions and superstitions. He wanted to have the worship services only on the Sunday. The Reformed churches in the Netherlands, where we have our roots, agreed. And so at a synod held in 1574, the churches decided that the feast days should not be held on a special day of the week, but on the Sunday before the actual event. And so with regard to Christmas, they decided that the birth of Christ should, remember, should be remembered on the Sunday before Christmas Day. They also decided to admonish the people not to observe the celebration of Christmas if it fell on a weekday. The problem, however, was that the people were given a day off on Christmas Day, on 25th of December. And on that day, apparently, they did not use their time wisely. That was also the case with the other religious holidays during the year, such as the Monday after Easter, and the Monday after Pentecost, and, the, and in some places where they even had a day off on Ascension Day and New Year's Eve. Some of the men went to the bars on that day and they engaged in other 
unwholesome activities. And so four years later, another synod in 1578 was held to deal with that issue once again. This time they made it even more prescriptive. Synod made the observation that God has given man the freedom to work six days in the week and that only the Sunday be set aside for worship. Synod urged the ministers of the churches to teach the members of the congregation to conduct themselves properly on those special days and to transform unproductive and harmful idleness into holy and profitable exercises. However, the Reformed churches could not stem the tide. Special holy days, holidays, were celebrated by everybody in the land. And so, rather than going against the tide, the church succumbed and allowed the institution of special worship services commemorating the special New Testament events. But now they prescribed to worship on that special day, even if it was on a weekday. Now it was made mandatory to worship on those days. All this took place in the 16th and 17th century. However, in the 19th century, this once again became an issue. The churches of the secession, the churches that broke away from the mainline Reformed Church that wanted to remain faithful, those secession churches in 1834 did not like the fact that these holidays were prescribed, that they were made mandatory. They wanted to leave it up to the conscience of the people. They said that we must not compel people to observe the so-called feast days, which the Lord has not commanded in his word. That's how it now stands with us as well. Currently, it states in our church order that the manner of celebration of the special days are left up to the freedom of the churches. According to the church order, you do not have to have a special worship service on Christmas Day or on Good Friday or on Thanksgiving Day or any other special day. Those New Testament events can be and must be remembered in the preaching on a regular Sunday. And yet we do have special services on Christmas Day and on Good Friday. You may wonder why not celebrate on the Sunday on or before the event? Why have services on those special days? Well, brothers and sisters, because now we are given the opportunity to focus on what the celebration is all about. So there is nothing wrong with worshiping on those days. If we did not worship on that day, we would be sending the wrong message about the true meaning of Christ. And so now we do it not because we are compelled, but because we have the wonderful freedom to do so. And in this way, we can show ourselves to be different from the world. Whereas the world focuses on man's gifts to each other, we focus on God's gift to the world. 
we look to God to bless us. The world looks at man to bless himself. We seek salvation from God. The world seeks salvation from man. The fact of the matter is that the birth of Christ is one of the most important events in the history of mankind. The Old Testament church had been waiting for that for thousands of years. Finally, the Messiah came in the flesh. The Lord God kept his promise that the evil one would be destroyed. He kept his promise that he would redeem his people from their sins and grant them glorious and eternal lives. He promised that already to Adam right after the fall into sin. He said that a seed of Satan would be destroyed. And he promised that the doors of heaven would be opened up to all those who believe in him. Isn't that something to celebrate? Isn't that something also to sing about, to rejoice about? Brothers and sisters, this world is in the grip of sin and Satan. In spite of the fact that we are a sinful people, we are not in the grip of sin because of the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, we should seize every opportunity to worship God and also to celebrate the wonderful events in the history of redemption. And we should certainly, most certainly do that on the Lord's days. And as we will see when we deal with Lord's Day 38, it is on the first day of the week that we are commanded to come together. But it does not mean that we cannot worship God also on another day of the week. Of course we can. Our hearts must yearn to hear God's voice. When you are in love, you yearn to be with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, or with your wife or your husband. You want to be together as much as you can. We also have a love relationship with the Lord our God. There is no greater love relationship than that. And that is something we should celebrate, brothers and sisters. And that is also what the world should see us celebrate. But this is not something that you can impose. It is something that you do from the heart. You do not earn your salvation by keeping those days. That is what some people think. As if going to a worship service on a certain day earns you some merit with God. That is what the Roman Catholics thought. And that is what the Judaizers to whom Paul wrote in the Galatians thought as well. Paul was concerned about that kind of legalism. That's not how you serve the Lord. Therefore, he says to those legalists among the Galatians, to the Judaizers who are imposing all kinds of feast days on the Christians, you are observing special days at months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. They're doing this in order to earn their salvation. 
For note well that he is speaking here about the imposition of these things. To the Judaizers that Paul writes to in the Galatians, the celebration of the feast days was necessary for salvation. And they were wrong. Paul says elsewhere in Romans 14, verse 5 and 6, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He regards one day as special, does so to the Lord. In other words, Paul leaves it in the freedom of the person, in accordance with his or her own conscience, with no pressure from others to observe special days. But then you do it to the Lord, not to show off piety, but to show the relationship that you treasure, that you have with the Lord your God. The Lord God does not give us a direct command for everything. As Paul says to the Galatians, we are now grown up. We are mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been brought up. And now we are children of God. We are heirs. And as heirs, we have to be good stewards. And we know how to be good stewards through the Holy Spirit. The Lord God does not give us command regarding everything that happens in the worship service. For example, God does not command us to worship twice on the Sunday. And yet we do. Why? Once again, because we seize every opportunity to worship the Lord our God. There is no direct command either that says in so many words that we are to baptize infants. However, the scripture also teaches that that clearly must be done. The same thing is true with regard to the singing of hymns. The Lord God has given us beautiful psalms to sing from, and we do so with great pleasure. But that does that mean that we cannot sing other songs which are derived from God's word as well, as long as they're based on scripture? Our singing is like prayers sent up to God. And so there are many other things that are not directly commanded by God, but which nevertheless flow out of the relationship that we have with God and therefore are faithfully practiced. These are not human elements we bring into the worship service, but scriptural ones. There is, of course, danger. There's always danger. There is a danger that we do certain things because that is the way we like it. Because we want to put man into the center, into the foreground. And so we always have to be on our guard. When we worship God, God has to be in the center. And therefore, we may not take away any divine elements in the worship service either. We have to be reverent when we worship. And that's what our second point is about. The Lord God wants you and me to take our worship seriously. When the Israelites worshiped the Lord in a way that he had not commanded them, then he killed 24,000 of them. For they sacrificed to other gods. 
He warned them against that before they went into Canaan. How they were not allowed to do that. That's what happened at Baal Peor. And when the sons of Aaron did not worship God in the way that he commanded, he put those men to death. The Lord God is a holy God. We may not worship him in a frivolous manner. And so we also have to think about the way that we worship him, all of us. How seriously do you take it? Well, it's wonderful to see you all here in this church building this morning. And that shows that you want to be faithful to God's word, and God will bless you for that. How great it is that God has made it possible for you and for me to be here this morning. And yet, we still have to be on our guard, brothers and sisters. How do we celebrate the Sunday? How do we celebrate the birth of Christ? What do our children think about when they think about Christmas Day? How do we prepare them for worship? What impressions do they have? Is it a day of worship for them? Or is it of indulging the flesh? Of course you can have fun. Of course you can have good meals together. You can do all kinds of things. But as long as God is always put into the center. And so ask yourself, how do we teach our children the concerns that the church fathers had in the 16th century are the same concerns that we have today. And we have to find all kinds of ways to show our children that that is our focus. It is a day of joy because of the birth of Christ. Even though that may not have been the actual date of his birthday, it is a day of reference and also of joy because of what God has done for the world. And the same thing must be said about the worship service every Sunday. How do we prepare ourselves for that day? Do we stay up half the night before so that we are too sleepy on the Sunday to partake in the worship service? And what about just before the worship service? How does that go in your homes? Do you have the right attitude? Are you in the right frame of mind for families with little children? It's not always easy to get ready for church. There are so many things that go on in a busy family and that can put you on edge. But it is important to put everyone in the right state of mind that our children understand that going to church is not a chore to be endured, but a privilege to be celebrated. We and our children should know what an actual church service, worship service, is all about. It is God meeting with us. That is what he is doing right now. He wants to speak to you and to me. And he wants to speak to you and to me about his love for us. He wants to tell us about what he has done through his son, Jesus Christ. And it is that message that has to come through every Sunday, through the living preaching of the word. 
He has given us the Lord Jesus Christ so that you and I can have a life, eternal life even. He wants us to understand what that covenant relationship is all about and how wonderful that is. In the worship service, the two parties of the covenant, they come together, they meet. And then it is God who takes the lead. He is the one who established that covenant relationship. He is the one who has chosen you and me to be part of his people. And he is the one who gathers us together. In the worship service, the people of God respond to God's love with their love for him. And so the Lord God wants us to respond in the proper way. He wants us to be active participants in the worship service. He wants us to pray to him and to sing and to actively listen to the proclamation of the word. He doesn't want us to sit here in this church building to sleep. He wants us to be active. And when you sing, he wants you to open your mouth. And when you give your alms, he wants you to do that generously. And when you listen, you have to do that actively. You must not only be an active participant, but also a reverent one. You may not be a stumbling block to others in the church by being disruptive, by carrying on conversations with others during the worship service, or not by sitting still, or by yawning. Some of you do. I can see you. Your reverence should show not only in the way that you sit and listen, but also in the way that you dress. You cannot dress as if you're relaxing at home, as if you're doing your chores. Before the Israelites assembled together, God told them to put on their best clothes. They also had to make sure that their clothes were washed and clean. They could not dress like they did during the rest of the week when they were working in the fields and looking after the animals and doing their household chores. No, God calls us to reverently worship him. God wants us to take our worship seriously. It is wonderful when I see you come into this church dressed up because we are meeting together with the Lord. You see, there is an awareness of that. But we also have to be careful with legalism. There are those who keep all the rules of worship and they are very definite as to what it is. And they want to do everything right. They dress in the right way, they sing in the right way, and they listen in the right way. Outwardly, there are examples of piety. And that was also the case with some of the Israelites during their history. To the eye, they did everything right, and then some. They made their sacrifices, they went to the temple, they kept the various ceremonies and feasts, but their hearts weren't in it. They weren't doing it because they wanted to. They weren't doing it because they were joyful. They were doing it because they wanted to earn their salvation. They were doing it because of other people. During the week, they lived like pagans. They thought that through the ritual, they could please God. 
brothers and sisters, our worship service is the culmination of what happens during the week. We have to worship God every day of the week. We have to worship him in our homes. We have to worship him in our hearts. For now we are temples of the Holy Spirit. It is only that on a Sunday we do this in a special way. That is when we come together. Then we have a special day. Isn't that great? Then we do it together as God's people. One of the wonderful things about the Reformation was that the simplicity and the beauty of the worship service was restored. The people had to be awed by God's greatness through the preaching, not through the beautiful buildings in which they worshipped. You can see some of those churches now still. Beautiful. You stand in awe. But that's not what we should stand in awe of, of what man can create with his hand. We should stand in awe of the greatness of God, and that is what our worship should do. And so the reformers went back to the Bible. They did not want the trappings of the liturgical innovations of the Roman Catholic Church with all its man-made ceremonies and rituals. It's true that nowhere in the Bible the exact order of worship is prescribed. But the way we have our worship services is directly derived from God's word. In Acts 2, verse 42, it says that the worshipers in the New Testament church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So it mentions there four things, four elements, teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. These are still the four elements in our worship services. The first thing mentioned, the apostolic teaching, no doubt refers to the reading and the preaching of the word of God. And then you have the second element, the fellowship, is from a Greek word refers, which refers not just to the communion of saints, but also included the offering or the collection in the worship services. In this way, the poor were looked after. That was all part of the fellowship. And then you had the third element, the breaking of the bread, which refers to the Lord's Supper. Luke also mentions here in this passage prayers. Prayers formed an essential part of the worship service. Well, with our psalms and hymns, we also send prayers up to God. It is not just the minister who does the praying. So do you when you sing. If you look at Lord's Day 38 of the Heidelberg Catechism, then you see those four same elements mentioned. It says that we must diligently attend the church of God in the first place to hear God's word, in the second place to use the sacraments, and thirdly to publicly call upon the Lord and finally to give Christian offerings for the poor. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, it is wonderful to worship God, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful to be here? God created us for worship. 
God created us to give glory to his name. He has given us the opportunity and the freedom to be able to do this. What a wonderful privilege. What a thing to be thankful for. And so let us not neglect to worship him and to worship him in the right manner. Let us do it also for the right reasons, not out of custom or superstition, as we promise when a child is baptized, but because we want to, because we have the freedom. It's wonderful to be together to hear God's word and to sing praises to his name. What a great way to spend your life here on this earth. What a wonderful way to train yourself for the heavenly glory that you will enjoy in the life hereafter. Can you imagine a better way to spend your time? How rich we are compared to the rest of the world. And so let us worship God. It's for that purpose that he created you. All life here on earth is ultimately all about worshiping that great maker. For to him alone belong all the glory and the power and the dominion forever. Amen.